is up, everybody? My name is James D. Fiore, and this is Blackball. Um, once in a while, it's nice to get, I'm going to get rid of this because it's driving me nuts. Once in a while, it's nice to get a perspective from south of the border. Um, we have a big complaint in Canada that often the worst aspects of politics are imported from the United States. I don't know how true that is. Uh, but I do know that a lot of people in this country feel that the rise of Pierre Poilievre, for example, the convoy protests, is a direct result of the Trump effect that we felt in the United States. And I guess they're still feeling in a certain way today with uh, this being an election year. To help me unpack all these things, I have investigative reporter. He focuses on international affairs and threats to democracy. His name is Dave Troy. Dave, how are you, buddy? I'm doing all right. Thanks for having me, James. Thank you for coming. How would you describe, um, if you've ever even given any thought, the idea of Trumpism being exported, possibly not just to Canada, but also to the Christine Andersons of the world and other places in Europe? Is that a plausible thing or were these things already under the hood, just sort of waiting to be let out of the box? Yeah, I mean, I think it's sort of all of the above. Um, there is a lot of illiberal kind of latent, um, you know, dissatisfaction with the status quo uh, that a lot of populists can cultivate uh, quite easily in you know, multiple different countries. Um, so it's not surprising to see those things both happen organically um, in multiple countries um, at the same time. Um, as well as uh, to see, you know, somebody like Trump have a resonance effect in other countries because people think, well, you know, if he can get away with it there, then maybe we can do something similar here. And, you know, then there's also a distinct network as well of uh, people who are directly connected. So Steve Bannon and Alexander Dugan have been uh, cultivating a network of far right operatives throughout Europe and the rest of the world for a good while. And so those people are all talking uh, to each other. And so it's kind of a networked insurgency in some ways. Uh, you know, all the things happening at once. Are we seeing the results of an movement of, I guess movement of apathy would be kind of a, a mangling of words, but is, is there, how much do we blame apathy for the vacuum being filled with these extremists that we see? And, and, and I, I'm one of those people, despite not being a lefty, um, I find Trump to be just dangerous just as a concept uh, overall. I find he's too much of a monkey wrench in a system that was already flawed to begin with. But then I start thinking about queers for Palestine, and I'm very confused. <laughs> so how much does apathy play a role in the vacuum being filled by bad actors? Well, I think apathy is certainly a factor. And to some extent, I mean, that's really what, um, you know, some of these bad actors are kind of counting on is that people reach a point of overwhelm where they really can't you know, process all of the crazy that's coming at them. And so they shut down, you know, they right, rightfully need to preserve their brains for, you know, keeping themselves calm and, you know, trying to find some uh, peace with their families and just live their lives. And so, you know, I think a lot of people kind of check out politically and just go, I cannot deal with more of this. And certainly, you know, those of us who do spend a lot of time online, I mean, I think we all have a sense that, um, uh, you know, doom scrolling isn't exactly great for us. And so, you know, there, there is a balance. And, and I think, you know, apathy is a factor. But I also think, you know, um, there's just a lot of this kind of illiberal, um, you know, uh, very kind of fascistic stuff that's being um, bubbling up through the populist networks. And it's not just really the right either. I mean, there's left populism, too. And you touched on you know like queers for palestine or whatever yeah you know there is a lot of organic support for palestine and i think you can make a strong case that israel is overreaching by a lot um but there's also a lot of these kinds of same networks that are pushing the left to be more extreme and pushing the right to be more extreme and and i think you know that's kind of what is being driven right now is this idea of confrontation between the extreme left and the extreme right and those of us who just kind of want to live a decent, fair, kind of reasonable life are caught in the middle and going, you know, geez, what the heck is happening? So it's it's a dangerous situation. Yeah, they, there's a lot of uh, people on the left, the far left and the far right, who think that being a centrist means you just haven't committed. Right, right. right. And and I think, you know, the, the, the research shows that, um, in fact, cross-cutting social ties that balance out you know, people's perception of the world and the way they, you know, live their lives um, are actually um, 
you know, something that we're losing. Uh, people are becoming more and more sorted into left and right wing um, ideological, um, you know, kind of uh, extremes. And it makes it more difficult for us to, you know, create friendships with people who are different from us and, um, you know, to have reasonable dialogue. And, and some of this, you know, there's some research that I highlighted recently in a podcast episode that I did is because we've moved from interacting at a local level to interacting at a global level. And the research so far indicates that the more interactions we have at a global level, the more people tend to sort themselves into just kind of two camps. And yeah. so this global sorting into polarization is is really not so much a product of an echo chamber effect, but a product of a sorting based on interaction effect, which is counterintuitive and not what people expect. How much do algorithms have to blame for that though i, I always thought that uh, we have uh, a bunch of bills up here in canada bill c10 bill c11 bill c18 that deal with disinformation on the internet and privacy and everything but precariously missing from any of these pieces of legislation is a focus on manipulative algorithms and how the algorithm itself will sort you into camps that will uh foster conflict um, and, and so it, it will only put you in your echo chamber and your polar opposite. Are we dropping the ball on focusing on these tech companies and, 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 and being able to be given maybe uh, the option to opt out of being sorted by an algorithm and just let me search YouTube the way I want to, that kind of thing? Do you think that that is a problem? Or I mean, it's a factor. Um, the research tends to show that um, you know, these algorithms are probably not as big of a factor as people think they are. Um, in general, the, the algorithms are not so much um, optimizing for giving you ideological sameness as they are for engagement. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes engagement is actually to give you stuff that pisses you off. Um, and so it's not always clear what these algorithms are exactly doing. And so, you know, the control case where you have an algorithm that's feeding somebody something and then you have another case where the, there is no algorithm, it's just, you know, whatever, timeline, uh, direct uh, feed. Um, it's not clear that that's going to make that much difference because, again, what seems to be the biggest driver of ideological sorting is actually this, um, uh, you know, interaction at a distance effect. Um, so, you know, if you're interacting with a lot of different kinds of people remotely, you're going to be inclined to, like, you know, block them and, you know, like their stuff yourself. You are the algorithm at that point. And so the, the effect of that is, is also very, very large. And so um, I think we're going to have to come to grips with all of that stuff, but I don't think it's so simple as to just say, if we just fix the algorithm, everything will be better. We, the, the, you know, people were dealing with this 100 years ago with the invention of uh, radio and television. Um, as the machinery for interaction, uh, you know, increased around the world and the, the speed increased for global communication, all of the institutions had to respond to that. And we're facing that now um, at a much bigger scale. Did I so, just see an augmented reality yeah. thumbs up going? I think that what happened is, is my camera saw that and then somehow or another did one. And I don't know where that's coming from, whether it's like part of this program. or Sir, what AI what? contrapment are you using right now? This is just a MacBook. I, you know, I... <laughs> um, where, so, so you have an election this year. I, we, we find it like we've been eating popcorn now for like, I don't know, like eight years. Yeah. <laughs> Watching what's going on down there. And it's, and it's strange because, listen, I was one of those guys, I don't know, maybe I'm a softie at heart, but when Barack Obama got elected, I was kind of reclaimed. I was like, this is big. This is like, yeah, you know, this, a big is, deal. this is a transformational moment. Did I like him as president? Oh, man, I, I could listen to the guy talk forever, but there was a lot of policies I didn't like. I didn't like his drone program. I didn't like the National Defense Authorization Act and, and, and those types of things. But... Then we go to 2016 and Trump gets elected. Okay, we've talked about that to death. I think Hillary Clinton was the wrong candidate to run against Trump because she's too polarizing. But now I'm just like, oh, it's going to happen again. They are running a man. Listen, I, I don't hate Joe Biden and I don't have a um, caricature version of him where he's like weakened up Bernie's or anything like that. But he is slowed down a lot cognitively and it's noticeable. Are they doing the same mistake that they made in 2016 by running a candidate who, for all intents and purposes, has the least chance of beating Donald Trump? Now, I don't know out of who, but he doesn't seem like the best foot forward for the Dems. 
Well, I mean, I think it's a it's a complicated situation because you know he, you know, is the incumbent. He does have, you know, you can argue whether he's slowed down or whatever, and a lot of that is just public perception and marketing, and you know, mm -hmm. so who knows? You know, I mean, like. Um, he is an old guy. There's no getting around that. And we all know what happens with old guys. And now, you know, Trump is also an old guy. Um, and, you know, my overall feeling on, on the whole situation is that, you know, when you're dealing with old guys, weird stuff happens. And either one of them could just keel over tomorrow and that would change everything. And we have to kind of be prepared for that. Um, from a polling perspective, um, Biden is doing well. Um, he's not you know, suffering too much at the hands of really anyone else. Um, but uh, again, we don't really know what the situation is going to be in November. That to me is probably the biggest wild card is that what exactly will we be dealing with throughout the rest of this year? Um, and, um, you know, I think it's important to recognize that, you know, Trump presents a real danger to not only the United States, but to democracy everywhere and, uh, you know, has all sorts of follow on effects that, that could be very harmful. Um, but, uh, you know, Biden being reelected isn't sufficient to save the world either. You know, I mean, yeah. he, he will be, you know, the same old guy that he is now in theory, you know, next year. And, um, you know, right now there's a lot that's out of control and going wrong, um, even though, you know, he's in charge and has control of the Senate and that sort of thing. Um, so, you know, I mean, I think. The, what we really need to start to think harder about is getting at the root causes of kind of how we got here and, you know, why our society is so divided and, you know, what makes somebody like a Trump possible um, or desirable uh, to some. And I think we just haven't grappled with that, like, at all, which makes us just very vulnerable, not only, you know, in the United States, but I mean, Canada is vulnerable to the same kind of manipulation, too, because we haven't um, really, you know, gotten at the root of the problem. Yeah, I think I would wholeheartedly agree. I think part of the problem is our tribalism gives us um, flexibility when we want to be terrible to the other side. And I, and, and I know a lot of people will disagree, even my viewers, when I say this, but when uh, the convoy protests happened, I was watching the media and people on social media paint everyone that went to Ottawa with one brush. And I was like, this isn't good because I know people that went there just out of curiosity I know people that went there that were progressives that just didn't like the mandates. Like they, you know, they they weren't far right mega people at all. But what happened was is that because of the way the media characterized them, because of the way that progressives and hard the hard left characterized them, they became converts. Right. They, were just they became radicalized were, just by virtue of the way that they got treated. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so when you talk about um, cause and effect, is is and we, we kind of touched this a little bit on polarization and left and right, but is is the symptom of of left and right that sort of idea that if you're not from my tribe or if you don't parrot what my tribe wants you to parrot, that they get pushed into the arms of the other side? Is How big of a problem is that? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, obviously there's a lot of kind of purity tests that are happening on both sides and, you know, people on the far left that, you know, don't sufficiently... Um, uh, you know, expressed concern about Palestine, you know, they, they get, you know, called uh, Zionists and whatever. And, you know, so there's all these kind of purity tests happening there. And then on the right side, you know, people that were donating money to Nikki Haley, Trump said that they're, they're kicked out of MAGA, you know. And so there's these, whenever you have these kinds of purity tests, you end up with a kind of a refinement of the insanity of the networks on both sides. And so those networks, you know, the science shows from political science studies and sociology that um, when when those networks become more and more tightly knit um, and don't have so many cross-cutting social ties they become um, you know sort of more ideologically aligned and more willing to do extreme things but they also become more reactive and um, they become particularly reactive at the idea that the other side might prevail so the way to make far lefties crazy is to suggest to them that the far right might prevail. Same thing for the far right. And um, so if you can sufficiently, you know, squirt information at those factions that gets them to be activated based on their fears, you can control their behavior, basically. They become programmable, for lack of a better word. 
Um, and so, you know, this is kind of what's happening um, around the world, um, you know, not just in the United States, but in Canada and Europe and whatnot. And, um, you know, what I find is that these kinds of physical actions where that people are brought, brought together in, um, you know, real world space, not just online, tends to enhance those bonds even further and to in increase that purity uh, test kind of factor. So what you were talking about in Ottawa with the truckers, you know, I mean, those folks went through an experience together. They had a shared real life experience that bonded them in a way that made them more reactive. Um, so, you know, I mean, that's going on around the world. And so you have to also look at that from the context of information warfare and how our adversaries might use um, information warfare to control the behavior of factions within our own countries. And that's what's happening. I'm curious because it's, it's hard to get a straight answer sometimes from um, not from American journalists. I've never asked this to American journalists before. I asked Noam Chomsky this once and, and he's like, well, of course, but maybe you have a different opinion. What does the United States do to disrupt elections overseas? Like currently, do they have a, 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 a digital strategy to disrupt elections in other countries? The reason why I'm asking that is because we're all we all clutch our pearls when we find out that China or Russia might be doing it to us. But no one ever asked the flip side question. Are we are we doing it to them? Is this like a you know, is, is this something that every country does? Like how do yeah, we I mean, I don't spend a ton of time on that specific topic just because, um, you know, it's not at the top of my list of concerns right at the moment. However, mm -hmm. I have read a lot about the subject. And what I would suggest is that the U.S. has done quite a bit in the past, uh, you know, particularly the CIA disrupting stuff, you know, in Chile. And, you know, there's a whole known history of, of all of that. And, of course, the KGB made great, you know, hay out of that during the Cold War really to highlight the hypocrisy of the United States, um, you know, because the KGB was doing a lot of that stuff and they, you know, felt like that uh, there was this whataboutism, you know, well, what about it? You do it as well. So to the to some extent, the U.S. has uh, backed off of a lot of that stuff, particularly since the, um, you know, church committee reforms in the 1970s. Also, the stuff going on with Iran-Contra in the 80s, you know, a lot of that got sort of found out and unwound. So I would say since then, there's been a lot less of that kind of thing. Um, it's going more through like NGOs and, you know, other kinds of soft influence. And the official policy of the United States is, you know, we do stuff like Voice of America. You know, we put out mm. truthful news and people can consume it. And if they want to get the truth, they can go there. Um, but, um, you know, I don't I don't think that the United States is, you know, as guilty right at the moment of any of that stuff as say Russia and China presently are. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at Four Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. Have you ever thought, I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Kundal, and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network. Speaking of Russia, uh, the Ukraine-Russia war, as it as it does every once in a while, has sort of dropped off the radar for a lot of people. Um, it, it was on the news every day for a long time, and now there's less and less of it. Is that a proxy war between Russia and United States or maybe elements of NATO? Because I'm, we're, I, you see some footage of, of uh, you know, uh, Russian warships getting destroyed and other things, and I, I have a hard time wondering what the difference is between donating weapons 
and not being part of the proxy war. Yeah, I mean, I I would go so far as to say that it is a war between the West and Russia, and that you don't even have to worry about prox proxy. I mean, it, it just is. And the reason it is is because um, ultimately, um, you know, it, R Russia is not satisfied with just sort of like, let's suppose that, that, you know, Ukraine stopped defending Ukraine and Russia took Ukraine. This would not end there, okay? You know, this would continue to bubble and fester, and you know, end up in places like Moldova and um, you know the Baltics and everywhere else in that region, and and would just continue to kind of you know bubble along. So, um, you know, what Russia's gambit is, and you know, this is I think difficult for a lot of folks in the West to think about. But their gambit is that, um, you know, they uh, are using U Ukraine to bring about the transformation of the world. And the way through which they think that will happen is that the West will end up getting dragged into first this situation in Ukraine, which, of course, you know, we have to some extent, um, while we have tried to keep from, you know, being directly, you know, engaged in hot conflict with Russia. Um, what is, you know, happening now is, of course, this, the conflict in the Middle East is unfolding and the U.S. has to choose between very difficult priorities around its support for Israel um, and, you know, how we deal with Iran and, you know, the whole rest of the situation there. And then, of course, the um, third theater that may open in this whole situation is in Asia, you know, with uh, North Korea increasingly making noises about threatening South Korea and Japan. Um, and of course, with Taiwan and China. Now, I was in Taiwan for about a week in October, and I came to the conclusion that, um, you know, China doesn't seem to have an immediate appetite to do something kinetic in Taiwan because it would just be a lot of work and disrupt a lot of things. And in general, they're, they try to do as much as they can without, you know, sort of creating chaos. Um, but uh, you know, that could easily open up. But I think the North Korean situation is much more volatile than the Taiwan-China situation. So, you know. That's because Trump isn't in office. They, we both know. Well, it's. yeah, I mean, for now, we'll see what, what happens yeah. if, if, you know, Trump were to get back in. But um, point being. Is it the usual saber rattling with North Korea? Are they threatening? No, this to, seems to, to be a much more, um, you know, direct kind of threat. And, you know, some good analysts that I've read from the Stimson Center suggest that, um, you know, it's different this time. Um, and they do, you know, they basically, for years, they thought that a rapprochement with the United States was the answer. And they did that up until, um, you know, the second um, summit with Trump. And then after that, they decided just to screw it. They're just not interested anymore. And what they found is that by kind of taking that stance, they became much more aligned with the headwinds or the, you know, the, the winds that were driving Russia and China and whatnot. So they're now much more able to kind of benefit from Russia's, you know, situation because, of course, they're supplying weapons to send to Ukraine. Um, and also, I mean, another weird thing that a lot of people don't know about is that the rocket motors that greatly accelerated um, North Korea's uh, missile program actually came from Ukraine, uh, from the Donbass in 2014, and may have actually been a motivation for part of that invasion. Um, so, you know, there's a big linkage between Ukraine and North Korea that people just don't think about. And I think that, you know, what, what will end up happening is that if the, that theater in Asia pops off, then the U.S. is going to be spread very thin. We're going to be spread between, you know, Ukraine, Israel, Iran, um, you know, Gaza and North Korea, Asia situation. And frankly, I mean, from a military standpoint, we could probably manage that. But from a political standpoint, um, in terms of coalescing U.S. support for any one of those things, much less any all of them, is going to be an incredibly contentious situation. And, you know, what basically Putin is counting on is that that will put the U.S. and Europe into a position where we just can't cope. And th that breakdown of not being able to cope will lead to a transformation after which Russia and China may come out on top. And I think what the, the deal with Russia is that it realized that the, the hand that it got dealt after the Cold War ended uh, was so bad, they basically felt like that any uh, reshuffling of the global order may benefit them. So therefore, let's just try to create a total reshuffling and as maximum amount of chaos as possible so that when it's over, they come out on top.
or at least higher up than they were. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, I'm glad Ron Paul didn't become president way back when because yeah, well, he's <laughs> different now. He's very, very much admired by Russia for sure. So, well, he, I mean, to decrease, I, I used to when I was younger in college and stuff, it, it was difficult for me to grasp the whole geopolitical thing and why America needed bases overseas. I've softened a little as I get older because there needs to sometimes be sort of a firewall like that, like military presence from the United States in South Korea makes sense, not just to the United States, but to South Korea, right? Like to put a sort of firewall between the North Koreans and the South Koreans. Um, I believe I could be wrong about this, but I thought I read uh, a couple months ago that that Trump did decrease slightly the military presence, right? In South Korea. Yeah, I believe so. You know, and that's a and that's a signal, right? So that that the that North Korea appears to be exploiting. But what are the options when you're talking about uh, these these big geopolitical militaries starting to rev up their engines without war? Like, what what kind of diplomacy do we see in 2024? Like, does that even exist anymore? Well, I think one of the problems that we've had is the idea that you know you can have diplomacy with somebody like Putin. Um, and the you know the bottom line is that you know anytime anybody has ever tried to reach an agreement with with you know Putin in particular you know it ends up being broken, and so you know the idea that like we can negotiate over Ukraine I mean there's really it's not it's really a non-starter I mean anybody that knows that space well will conclude that now you know there's a handful of Russian apologists who are well known you know the Samuel Cherups of the world who um, you know believe otherwise but um, at the end of the day. Uh, no real serious analysts believe that Putin will uh, honor any agreement. So, you know, ultimately, you really need to push back on Putin with force. And I think it's a mistake that we have let the Ukraine thing drag on as much as we have. I mean, you know, they were saying, you know, initially they were going to take the whole place in two or three days, you know, and it's been what, you know, over 700 days now. Um, and, uh, you know, no, no sign of, of them taking it in sight. But at the same time, you know, we could have been giving them a lot more weaponry, you know, atacomes and things like that. So, you know, um, I feel like that we just have been um, too hesitant to give Ukraine what it needs to prevail and to, to win. And I think that we need to talk more in terms about winning rather than just sort of maintaining some kind of uh, stalemate. It, there's a risk to winning, though, as well, isn't there? <clears throat> I mean, depending on how you win, right? Like yeah. We, we, you know, you don't want to see St. Petersburg or Moscow and, you know, look reduced. No, I don't think right? there's any reason to, you know, uh, get into a huge revanchist thing with Russia. But I think Russia could, should go home. It should be strongly encouraged to go home, you know, and to the extent that this exercise in Ukraine just becomes unwinnable for them and, you know, they're just not making progress uh, and, you know, uh, they're running out of men's material supplies, money, uh, food, uh, perhaps it would be best if they went home. So, you know, whatever we can do to encourage Putin to bring troops home and or to end the Putin regime. I mean, you know, I'm not suggesting that, you know, somebody take him out, but um, to the extent that, um, you know, uh, internal forces end up, uh, you know, overwhelming him. I mean, I think that would be good. And I think, you know, <laughs> that should be talked about as an option. Not to say we go in there and incite, you know, some revolution or something, but um, encouraging them to have a revolution might not be terrible, you know. So, yeah, you know, dictators have a long shelf life sometimes. Um, we just had Tucker Carlson up in Canada and I've been listening and I've listened to a couple of clips from Joe Rogan over the last few months. Apparently, I didn't know this, but I live in a country led by a dictator, an authoritarian figure named Justin Trudeau. Um, the, 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 the way that when Stephen Harper was in power in Canada, they used to say that he was a Nazi who ate babies. That's the, that was the character of Stephen Harper. Now Trudeau um, is, is a dictator, authoritarian. The profound lack of understanding of politics among people who are newly activated as political people, uh, new voters, as, as people that are active on one side or the other uh, when it comes to um, uh, protests and activism and things like that. 
that has I, I never thought of that before about I, I used to think that voting should be mandatory and now I'm like oh my gosh look at these new people that are into politics they have no idea what they're talking about often is that problem fixable well I think you know it is but we've got to spend a lot of time on it and ultimately um, you know you talk about folks like Tucker Carlson and Joe Rogan and what I mean these are folks that are engaging in information warfare more than anything else I mean you know, I, I don't think that even they necessarily believe some of the stuff that they're saying. It's more just like what effects does it produce and is it beneficial for what they're trying to achieve from a warfare perspective. Um, so but the, the danger is, is that when somebody like a Joe Rogan or a Tucker Carlson, you know, says stuff to the general public and the general public takes it up as if it was meant anything. And then they go around doing these things and then they have pretty uninformed opinions and whatnot. And that's not great. Um, ultimately, my belief is that we need to focus more on social cohesion um, in, in Western countries, um, particularly the U.S. and Canada. One of the reasons why is because, you know, if you look at how the U.S. developed, um, you know, we have big cities and we have countryside. And in between, there's a lot of empty space. Um, and there are, you know, a lot of people that live in rural areas. There's a lot of people that live in urban areas. But those people in general have diametrically opposed worldviews in general, not always, but in general. And in fact, the data supports this. If you look at population density, um, it is a very high predictor, around two thirds of voting behavior. And I believe that holds true in Canada as well. So, you know, that's why a lot of the crazy stuff that you guys have emerging is coming out of like Alberta um, because, you know, it's oil and low density and all that. And they have a different worldview. So at, at any rate, um, because these two different worldviews have coalesced in urban versus rural, there's not a lot of connective tissue between, you know, Americans from those areas. And so we tend to demonize each other. Um, and, um, you know, there's a lot of other factors in play as well, but that's a major one. And one of the things that marked the World War II generation, particularly the people that ended up ending up in roles of leadership in government and in business, um, is uh, that they ended up serving in World War II together. And that generation that ended up having these cross-cutting social ties, geographically, rich and poor, whatever, you know, they ended up creating a more or less livable situation for a few decades. And we kind of forgot how we did that. We, don't, we didn't pay attention to the fact that that happened. But, um, you know, we need to do that on purpose now and we, we preferably without a giant world war. Um, and, you know, that'll take like 30 years to do because, you know, that's how long it takes to sort of grow a generation. But we could get started now and we could see real results from it, you know, in like 10, 15 years by like, you know, having um, national service of some kind. And I'm not talking about military service, like just public service, just getting people together where they mix from different, you know, backgrounds. And mostly that's just not been on anybody's radar as being a thing we ought to do. And I think until we do that, we're not going to have the defense against the information warfare because it's going to be so easy to pick people off based on their, you know, their predilections and their, their existing social media. So anyway, that's my big answer to the problem. Yeah, no, the, 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 I, I agree with much of that. The, the, it's interesting looking back is in hindsight, uh, I, I remember being at the time and listening to uh, critics talk about Mitt Romney. Oh, my God, he just seemed awful. And now you look back, you're like, he was a pussycat. There was, <laughs> yeah, he was practically really reasonable compared to some of the current stuff, you know. Even George Bush Sr., you know, yeah. like in his early days when he was CIA director, maybe not. But he pulled out of Iraq. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? And maybe that was a mistake. <clears throat> some military strategists will say that that's the reason why the next war had to happen. But whatever. But like, but think of the difference between him and his son. Do we need a history lesson to sort of bring us back to a place where we remember, hey, listen, there was a time we thought Mitt Romney was the devil. Let's all chill for a second and just realize that in hindsight, Justin Trudeau or possibly even Donald, maybe not Donald Trump, but <laughs> people like Justin Trudeau, we, you're going to look back and be feel ridiculous for calling him an authoritative dictator. How? I guess I'm frustrated even trying to figure out a way to formulate the question because there's nothing adjacent to um to to where we are right now that will give us the clues that it's not as bad as you think it's always the end of the world it's always something like this is going to be the end of it oh my god there's going to be riots on the street this and that it rarely ever happens you know like well, even trump's presidency yeah. january 6th was bad 
it was bad. But really, at the end of the day, like the people like me were like, I hope there's no civil war because all those guys have guns. And then they didn't send their best and their best and brightest to to the capital. And that I mean, it was tragic. A couple of people lost their lives, but that's what happened. And it was like, oh, it was a relief almost. You know that they that they that the people who wanted to take over the country didn't have the brain power or muscle to do it. I was like, oh, that's great. How do we get there? Like, yeah, I mean, I think you know it's a, it's a multi front kind of uh, process. I mean, you know, so I saw somebody in the chat, you know, mention education. I think that's an issue. I also do think though that it's, it by itself isn't a panacea because you know at the end of the day, um, you know, what is education? I mean, education is determined by. The community of people that are educating the people that live in the community um and as much as you know we there's a current battle in the u.s between public and private schools and curricula and everything about you know what's taught to whom um ultimately um you know you you have to somehow or another get people interested in things that maybe are outside of what their community is sort of focused on so you know, that's a factor, but that's ultimately then takes you back to this cross-cutting social ties problem, which I think is, is really key. So that's an issue. I think, you know, having some perspective about, you know, sort of the arc of history in general. I mean, I spend, you know, as much as I'm worried about current events, to understand current events, I spend a great deal of time looking at history, and particularly the 1940s, 1960s, 1970s. I mean, I, I bop all over the place in an effort to understand current worldviews and where they came from. And to do that, you just have to be reading history all the time. And I'm not just talking about like, you know, books from, you know, $10 books from the bookstore. I'm talking about you know, like old texts and primary source documents and stuff like that. And frankly, you know, I mean, it's unreasonable to ask everybody to be like a historian, you know, like it's, but that's kind yeah, of what we don't we, want to tell everyone to do their own research. No, you kind no. of don't. And if you do tell people that, you need to be really careful about how they do that research because at yeah. the end of the day, I don't just mean Googling stuff on the internet. I mean knowing how to weigh and, and evaluate information and deal with primary source documents and look at sourcing. And um, so, I mean, that's that's you know, sort of a heavy lift. And, um, you know, I, I do have a sense of kind of how we got here, but it's taken me years worth of study of all kinds of arcane things to, to figure it out. And it's, you know, not not simple. Lately, I've gotten all my historical references from the show The Crown. <laughs> Surprisingly good show. Yeah, I have I not seen it like yet. It. I've heard good things. Yeah, it's good. Um, okay, let's spend the next, the last 10 minutes, uh, maybe a bit more, but talking about uh, one of the easiest subjects to talk about on this planet, Israel. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, there's never any landmines in there. Um, okay, I guess what I want to know is, I, I see when 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 the October seventh terrorist attack happened because that's what it was. Hamas came into Israel. They mowed down civilians at a music festival in their homes. Other places, it was awful. Came on parachutes, and then like two days later, uh, many um, extreme people were uh, using the palace, the Hamas spider uh, with the parachute as like a logo, as some sort of like positive meme I, I i was i was completely um floored and gutted seeing that because I, I just think it signals something wrong with us and then when you fast forward i see supporters of israel saying you know israel regrets the loss of civilian casualties i'm sure they do but they blame all of those civilian casualties also on hamas and so i i get to a point where I, I, I know how it started, at least I think I do, because one side might say occupation and settlements instead of October 7th. But is there, is there a distinct problem uh, when it comes to people who don't necessarily have a dog in that fight um, coming up with some sort of constructive criticism but getting dismissed as maybe a bigot or an anti-Semite? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's, it, it's a very contentious situation, as you know, which is one of the reasons it's so attractive for information warfare, because it creates a lot of light and a lot of heat. Um, and so I think, you know, some of what we're seeing is really just a product of it being an attractive target for, um, you know, people that are acting in bad faith. Um, but, you know, that said, I think, you know, if you look at sort of where some of that most inflammatory 
kind of uh, commentary and imagery was coming from. I mean, we saw it light up across the information warfare networks that are, you know, generally mirroring the Russian perspective. Mm -hmm. So in my opinion, you know, in general, what you have going on, uh, you know, with, with that situation is Iran and Hamas and, um, you know, to some extent Hezbollah uh, and Russia, you know, all sort of aligned in, in common purpose here of kind of accelerating this to a point of, um, you know, real severe conflict. Um, on the other side, you've got, you know, Netanyahu seems also interested in accelerating this to the point of severe conflict. And what I see, rather than sort of getting into the mired mess of, you know, who's in the right here, because honestly, I mean, everybody's done terrible things. Um, there's this desire to accelerate, to bring things to a point of um, confrontation and, and sort of closure almost. And so, you know, as much as I, you know, people talk about, you know, a two-state solution or a one-state solution, I mean, they're ignoring the other option, which is zero-state solution, mm. um, which is, you know, I think kind of like what Putin would like to see of just kind of eliminating the entire place. And if you look at, you know, if you study Putin's foreign policy arc and his ideas for the world, in general, what they sort of want to do is to eliminate populations that cause problems and, and create conflicts. Yeah. So to the extent that both, of, both sides of that conflict are people that generally, you know, have been creating conflicts, uh, at least from Putin's perspective, maybe the best thing to do is just get rid of everybody that's causing problems. You mentioned earlier about uh, you said something that I found interesting, the Russian perspective. There are two camps, right? There, there's there's people who um, are clearly um, carrying water uh, for the Russian perspective. And then there's people that have opinions that may accidentally align with the Russian perspective. Do we spend enough time separating those two groups? Because I find the latter to be a little bit more innocent. Yeah, well, what you can generally do is, you know, kind of track people longitudinally over time. Um you know, if somebody accidentally has the same opinion as Russia repeatedly and seems to, um, you know, mirror, uh, you know, RT headlines repeatedly again and again and again, then sort of, you know, it sort of smells like a, a Russian aligned source. If it's somebody that, you know, occasionally steps in the swamp of agreeing with Russia, hey, you know, whatever, you know, we've all made mistakes and, you know, maybe even have a legitimate point of view. And, you know, sort of there's the clock stop, the stop clock theory, you know, maybe twice a day Russia's right about something. Um, so, you know, you have to use some discernment, I think, when you're looking at these things. But again, it's really about longitudinal analysis. Also, the kinds of stuff that they um, amplify, like if they're consistently amplifying the same people and those people are, you know, known to be affiliated with Russia, then, you know, you kind of start to get the contours of the network from, from there. But I think, you know, giving people the benefit of the, doubt, of the doubt, at least for the first while, is is fine. It's just when it becomes a habit and seems to be systemic or systematic, then you kind of need to conclude otherwise. Yeah, it's interesting. I find the... Um, right now, I've, I'm waiting for the Zelensky shoe to drop. And what, what I mean by that is... Anytime I see somebody on the world stage, it happened to Trudeau to a certain, to a lesser degree, who is just infallible. Oh my God, there's nothing he can do wrong. He, every decision he makes is amazing. I have not seen one article from a serious uh, media company that takes him to task about anything. There's a lot of kid gloves. If there's any gloves at all, it's just Zelensky can walk on water. When that shoe drops, I, I mean, because it, it never doesn't happen. It always happens. Whenever someone has good PR like that, Eventually, something will come out where it'll be like, oh, my gosh. And then we take a look back in hindsight at the free pass and the blank check that we gave them. How can we be like, listen, we're not for Russia in this war, but is there anybody examining the leadership of this person other than GQ magazine and his casual clothes walking around the House of Commons and all this stuff? Why does he it seems to be a symptom of, of the way that this war is being fought, where it's like you have to hate Putin. So therefore, you have to love Zelensky. Are you are you seeing the same thing I'm seeing or no? I see what you're getting at. Um, you know, I think that there has been if you look at kind of, you know, the, the pro-Russian side of the information landscape, there's been a lot of effort to kind of, um, you know, call call his leadership into question and to. Um, you know, suggest that money is being mispurposed or that, you know, he's spending it on drugs or, you know, various other things. And some of the criticism has been so you know, almost caricatured as to make it be less, 
you know, it almost undermines itself because it's mm. not serious critique. It's just like throwing stones, you know, like literally I was at a thing a year ago um, and there were posters, you know, suggesting that that Zelensky was, you know, a drug addict, you know, and it's like, really, you know, like that's the best you can come up with. I mean, you know, you could, there's probably, I'm sure, reasonable things to uh, criticize, but certainly that doesn't seem like one of them. So I do think, you know, what you're talking about makes some sense. But I mean, um, you know, it's ultimately going to boil down to, you know, just this issue of fatigue in general, too, because, you know, as, as we've seen in the U.S., there's a, a vocal faction in Congress that has, uh, you know, sort of grown tired of funding Ukraine and uh, has sort of fallen under the, the Putin spell on that that point. And, um, you know, there's there's real fatigue that's set in. So, you know, I mean, I, I think that's just sort of going to happen regardless. And mm -hmm. the real so that's why the question is, OK, you know, if we really want Ukraine to win, we should have, do it sooner rather than later, because time is a risk. Right. Yeah. Um, if if we really want them to win, do it now rather than wait six months or a year. Because if we wait six months or a year, we don't know what's going to happen with the presidency, and we don't know what's going to happen with funding. Uh, before I let you go, I I, I was uh, doing my Dave Troy deep dive, and I saw a podcast that you did. I don't have it in front of me anymore, but the general gist of it was that there is almost a romanticization of psychedelics and being able to help from a therapeutic standpoint and also bring world peace. I'm paraphrasing because I don't have it in front of me. Yeah, yeah. Can you give me um, your thoughts on the potential for uh, psilocybin as far as it being used as a therapeutic and what the downside could be? Well, first, I want to, you know, kind of distance myself from making any kind of medical judgment or evaluation on that because I'm not a doctor and I don't, you know, claim to have credentials in that area. But, um, you know, what I would say is that um, there is a lot of effort coming specifically out of Silicon Valley to kind of make this the next frontier in terms of sort of consumer treatment of, you know, uh, depression and that sort of thing, you know, both with uh, psilocybin, ketamine, uh, LSD are all being kind of touted by these networks. And if you dig into it a bit, and I would encourage folks to listen to this podcast episode I did, it's titled Psychedelic Fascism. Um, and, you know, two words people don't normally put together. Uh, but basically the idea is that uh, there's a whole tradition of this going back into the 20th century where um, LSD actually came about at right, right around the same time as the atomic bomb. And the thought was, was that, you know, LSD might actually help people understand and comprehend the power of the atomic bomb. And so there's been this kind of weird parallel relationship between the two uh, since then. And um, uh, there's a thought that, you know, something like psychedelics can help the humans, help humanity uh, evolve uh, so as to be able to uh, properly contain the, the power that exists within the atomic bomb. And um, also there is a sense of um, kind of uh, superiority that people like Aldous Huxley assigned to the condition of being more evolved. So the idea being that some percentage of humanity would be able to evolve forward and sort of run things in a kind of monarchistic, um, elitist, you know, plutocratic almost kind of mold where, you know, a very few people that were very enlightened because they'd done enough LSD could run things and everybody else could just be worker drones. And, you know, if they didn't like it, they could take psilocybin or something to make them feel better. Um, so that's kind of the thesis that some of the papers that uh, we review in this podcast episode um, hit on. And there's a lot of evidence to support that's something that people are thinking about right now, particularly in Silicon Valley. So it's kind of like, uh, you know, late stage psychedelic capitalism, uh, a bit like, um, uh, you know, the Soma drug in Brave New World. You know, what, what, is, what will it take to get people to be content with their lot in life? It's a bit yeah. dystopian. <laughs> so. Yeah, and, and I have experience with psilocybin. I, I've I've taken mushrooms many times in my life. Um, I don't anymore. I don't think I will. Not maybe not forever, but for a while at least. I I can see the benefits. I can see the difference in perspective. But I know it's not for everybody. Like it's not. It, 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 as soon as I see it get synthesized by a pharmaceutical giant and then marketed to masses, I, you know, I get a little worried because I think for people like myself who. Uh, past trauma, maybe ADHD or whatever, sure. I can see the benefits for it. But just a regular person who doesn't have any issues, if they use it recreationally, that's fine. But I think therapeutic needs to be 
super focused. Yeah, and that's I think you know what what we hit on in the podcast is like you know in the right kind of conditions it can be helpful for you know people with certain kinds of situations. But again, it's not something to be kind of trifled with. It's a serious mm -hmm. drug. It's a family of drugs, and um, you know the idea that you're going to just sort of like crank it out for mass consumer adoption in order to so solve the woes that come with uh, you know late stage capitalism it's it's a bit dystopian when you put it in that light you know? uh the podcast is called psychedelic fascism with nesse devonet uh, i heard it's pronounced nesse devono nesse devono i'm from canada in my bilingual country i still didn't know uh, i put the link in i'll put it in again that's the link there if you guys want to go check out dave on that podcast uh dave it's always a pleasure having you here um i really Absolutely. appreciate your insights and uh we'll have you back again soon thank you sir hey thank you have a great day Dave Troy, I like him a lot. He's very down to earth. Uh, he's he knows a lot. Knows a lot more than I do. Um, maybe not about mushrooms, <laughs> but possibly the therapeutic effect of mushrooms. Um, yeah. So that's that. Uh, we will probably not do a casual Friday this week. I'm hoping to be reunited with my kids in about uh, in about a week or so. So that's going to be dope. I can't wait. Oh my god. <sighs> but until then, we'll see you next time on Blackpool. Roger, and I host a leadership show called The Boiling Point with my co-host, Dave Vale. Together, we sit down with trailblazing entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and movement makers who are driving meaningful change in our world. The show is all about exploring the lives and perspectives of leaders who are making a difference. Join us for insightful conversations that challenge the status quo, spark new ideas, and inspire you to take action. Find us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or at BoilingPointPodcast.com. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com.